Welcome to the UW Political Economy Forum podcast. My name is Nicholas Wittstock. I'm a fellow at the UW Political Economy Forum. This is episode nine on economic and financial literacy. In today's episode, I speak to Beatrice Magistro, a PhD student in the political science department and fellow with the forum. And I'm speaking to her on her PhD dissertation on economic and financial literacy and its effect on policy preferences. Welcome, Beatrice. Hi, Nicholas. Thank you so much for having me here. You're very welcome. Excited for this. Too. So first of all, can you explain how you came to this topic for your uh, PhD dissertation? Yeah, sure. So it's it's kind of a long story, so we'll try to make it as short as I can. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> this all started during the years on crisis. So we're talking probably the height of it, so probably 2011. I was an undergrad at Bocconi University in Italy, and Italy was really in the middle of the crisis. Uh, it was when Berlusconi left power and Monti, who was actually a professor at Bocconi University, became the technocratic prime minister. And I suddenly became interested in like the Eurozone crisis in economics in general. I was studying it, but it had never like been something so concrete to me. And now something big was happening around me and I wanted to understand what was causing it, uh, what were the consequences of this. And... In this time, um, one of the ministers of the Monti government became very famous, Elsa Fornero. She was the labor policy and social policy minister. And she passed a very important reform, the pension reform in, this was November, 2011. And to this day, I think that reform saved the Eurozone. And she increased the retirement age in Italy. And this gave rise to a lot of opposition, a lot of hatred against her. And at that time, I didn't know that a couple of years later, in 2013, during my master's at Collegio Carlo Alberto, um, I would have the chance to work for her. So I got to meet her in person. Uh, it was a wonderful experience. I collaborated with her for a few months. I actually saw firsthand what it meant for her to be like the subject of hatred from a lot of people. She would receive tons of emails every day with death threats because of the bold reform she passed. Um, and during all of the time, the thing I appreciated about her is that she always took the time to answer to everyone, to try and explain the reasons behind that pension reform and why she had to do that. And so she, she got me passionate about financial literacy because she started talking about how she researched financial literacy and its effects on people's retirement choices and investment choices. And we started discussing that maybe financial literacy, economic literacy could also be important for policy preferences. Maybe people, if they understood how the pension system works, uh, how the economy works, they might, be, they might not be happy about this type of reforms, but they may be more willing to accept them. And I was so fascinated by that, that um, that's what got me interested into researching this question. So like, how, do, how does financial and economic literacy explain policy preferences? Well, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Uh, could you explain maybe a little bit what you, what you mean exactly when you refer to financial and economic literacy? So this is interesting because what is usually meant by financial literacy, so financial literacy is used in a lot of work through these three questions that measure a person's understanding of compound interest, 
inflation risk diversification. They're a very basic question that tests your understanding of these issues. Usually they're used as like used as predictors of like retirement choices, investment choices, savings choices. And there is a large literature in economics on this, on the effects of financial literacy, again, on like, I would say household private decisions. But there is absolutely no literature on the effects of the potential effects of financial and economic literacy on policy preferences. So in a political context. And so this is where I think my work is really innovative. So I tried to, I thought a lot through the years, because I've been working on this for about five years, about measurement issues, right? So I got acquainted with, um, for instance, the political sophistication literature, political knowledge a literature that also tries to predict whether political knowledge affects policy preferences. But I was often not satisfied with those questions because you have so sorts of questions like things that ask you like, who is the vice president or who is the speaker of the chamber or things like this. And I wasn't sure about how that would predict someone's policy preferences. And then on the other hand, I start being familiar with this financial literacy literature that I was also not completely satisfied with because I do think it's important. It's kind of the basis, like to understand what inflation is, how budgets work, or like what compound interest is. But then I also thought knowing what compound interest is doesn't necessarily mean that. So if I don't know, for instance, how the Italian pension system works, it's really not very useful to know what compound interest is. Right. If I don't know if, for instance, if it's a pay as you go system or if it's a funded plan. What I thought was that maybe I should complement this financial literacy question, which I would say are more of like the the basis of it. Mm. Um, with so you could say like more of the kindergarten, elementary school dimension of it, with some more of the high school college dimension, which for me was a step further, which is also economic literacy. So actually understanding how policies work and how those policies affect well-being. So for instance, I add questions that ask how the Italian pension system works. So like I ask people if they know that current contributions actually fund current pensioners and not future pensions. And only 33% of Italians know that, which is very surprising. Or I ask questions that ask what happened if a, system, if, a, if a trading country, a trading partner decides to institute, institute um, import restrictions, okay? So what mm -hmm. happens to prices here? Kind of try to ask these sorts of questions that get to the, not only like how policies work, but also a little bit what the effects of these policies are. And then I build an index based on that, which is called the, the Financial and Economic Literacy Index. And I look at how that affects a person person's policy preferences. And I know that this measure is not perfect as to now, but I will talk a little bit about my research, um, how I use it, and also how I plan to move over this in my future work. Well, that's fascinating. So maybe my first question would be, what do you find when you try to measure these um, policy preferences? Uh, you said you have done uh, work on this in the context of Italy. Um, how strongly does knowledge of um, yeah or economic literacy differ in between people? Are there geographic differences? Are there uh, generational effects? What do you find? So what I find is that, so yes, there are differences, for instance, regional differences between the North and the South, with the North being having higher financial and economic literacy. 
And the most starking difference that I actually want to investigate further is the gender difference. So you have about, so among highly financially and economically literate individuals, 70% are men and 30% are women. And this is a very striking difference. And I have like theories as to why this might be. And most of them have to do with like gender equality issues and the fact that uh, women, since like they're little children, they're kind of told that math leads to more of like more of male careers. So they're kind of disincentivized to do to follow the math track. If you look at the PISA scores for math, uh, the gender gap increases over the years, um, kind of confirming um, the story. Also, the gender gap is negatively correlated to gender equality to countries. So countries with higher gender equality have lower gender gap in math. Um, so I think this might be partially related to that. And there are very few women in economics and STEM in Italy. So I, my assumption is that it is due to this. So I look at Italy. Um, and then for financial literacy, actually, the first country I ever looked into is the UK. Because that's the first country I actually tested the financial literacy and policy preferences hypothesis because the data was easily available from the British election study. Um, so I started from there. And then once I found that there actually was indeed a relationship between financial literacy and policy preferences, I looked specifically at preferences for free trade, for immigration, and for Brexit. And what I found was that people with higher financial literacy were less likely to vote for Brexit and more likely to favor immigration and free trade. But for instance, since one concern about one concern I had was that maybe financial literacy was just like a proxy for more progressive views. Uh, so maybe it's like, you know, higher educated people are just have just in general more progressive views. And what I find is that, for instance, it's not related to social policy preferences, like, for instance, views towards uh, gay and lesbian civil rights. And so from then on, I worked a lot on thinking about measurement issues. I devised this new index and I did two of my own surveys in, in the Italian context where I found these this interesting findings and, and, and differences between regions and, for instance, across gender. And I found similar things when I looked at preferences for economic openness. So in Italy, using this economic and financial literacy index, I find similarly as in the UK, that people who are more financially and economically literate are more likely to favor free trade, to favor immigration, uh, to favor remaining in the Eurozone, and also to favor the Fornero pension reform. That's fascinating. And you say that you've controlled for uh, the possibility that this might be an education effect, right? That this is just, well, you know, the people that are that you pick up as being more uh, economically and financially literate just happen to be the people who are more educated. Exactly. So I control for that. And I actually also run the same models with education in place of financial and economic literacy. And there isn't an effect. So I show that actually financial and economic literacy capture distinct features that years of, of education, years of schooling do not do not capture. Do you control also for the fact that higher financial and economic literacy might proxy for higher income? Yeah, sure. I control for age, gender, income, education, and region of residence. And also for, um, in the financial and economic literacy ones, I also control for political preferences. Because um, 
while I'm not concerned that like financial literacy could possibly be confounded by political preferences, it is possible that economic literacy could be, right? So your answer to a question on what happens once a country decides to institute tariffs um, or import restrictions or what happens, what are the effects of immigration, right? If that's measuring economic literacy, it could be confounded by your political preference, right? Actually, your political preference could be determining how you answer that question. Right. So I do control for um, political preference and it still doesn't affect the result. And what I also do is I look at the individual effect of economic and financial literacy questions in the, in the Italian one. And what I find is that the size of the effect, so I run the same models once with just financial and economic literacy and once with just economic literacy. And I find that the effects are shrink in size, but in the same direction, right? Uh, which to me suggests that the compounded measure, the index, is actually better at capturing an individual's ability to understand the effects of a policy. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so it seems that my level of ability to evaluate the actual impact of specific policies determines my actual policy preferences. Sorry. Again, I don't have a I don't have a randomized control trial, so I guess we shouldn't right. use the words effect. Um, but yeah, it influences it. Right, there's a relationship. Okay, so how does this matter for different political decisions? Like, how impactful is this in swinging elections or creating party allegiances or things of that nature? I think this can be like extremely important because if you know if economic literacy affects support for welfare-enhancing reforms, and it makes you more likely to identify welfare-enhancing reform reforms and to identify the welfare-reducing ones, then we may be interested in, you know, actually investing in some kind of like economic and financial knowledge um, from early education, because we could potentially reduce the support for welfare-reducing reforms. So to me, what are these welfare-reducing reforms? A lot of these reforms are the ones that are pushed forward by populist leaders. I mean, this is the time in history in which we have the highest number of populists. I was reading the other day about uh, 25% of the leaders, if I'm not wrong. Yeah, so 25% of nations are currently governed by populists. And they push forward this these policies, like they promote these types of policies, like protectionist, nationalist, often like unsustainable macroeconomic policies that actually then in the end do lasting damage to the economy. So I think this is this is incredibly relevant. Yeah. Do you want to talk about your paper with Victor Minaldo in which you um, pick up that thread exactly? Yeah. I recently wrote a paper with Professor Victor Minaldo, who's also co-chair of my dissertation committee. And we talk about the perils of, econ of economic populism. So we talk about the fact that in the end, whether populism is right wing or left wing, the result is economic disaster. And the foundation of this economic populism is usually zero-sum thinking. So whether it's right-wing or left-wing, there is the basis is always this type of zero-sum thinking where somebody's gains must be someone else's losses. So we're usually more familiar with the right-wing populism and which 
which basically sees minorities um, and immigrants as, as the source of those losses, right? So it antagonizes the insiders versus outsiders. So it's possible then that certain types of shocks trigger this type of zero-sum thinking more and make certain dimension more, dimensions more salient. And so people who are more economically illiterate are also more likely to fall prey to this type of, of zero-sum thinking and of you know insiders versus outsiders that is typical of, of populism in general. In that paper with uh, Victor Manalo, you, you make the, the argument that these policies are ultimately self-defeating in the long term. The track record is really bad, right? There are yeah. tremendous economic costs to these kind of policies. Exactly. So we make the case using uh, a few examples. So we start from uh, Chile and Argentina. We move to Spain. And then finally, we use more contemporary examples from Italy and Greece. And we explain how no matter what type of populism is in place, the result is this long lasting damage to the economy. And what's interesting is that the, there is this recent paper by uh, Funke et al, um, populist leaders and the economy, where they actually investigate how economies perform under populist leaders from 1900 to 2018. And the fascinating findings are that after 15 years, GDP per capita is more than 10% lower in in, uh, in populist countries compared to a plausible non-populist counterfactual. And also, regardless of a lot of promises, especially from the left type of populism, there is no reduc reduction in, in income inequality. This is exactly what Victor and I predicted and found in our paper using uh, more limited case studies. Yeah, so policy matters, right, is what you're saying at the end of the day. Like, we can't just uh, do whatever we want and it's going to work out. No, policy have real implications. So we better make sure that we elect political leaders or we give support to political leaders that create more welfare enhancing in aggregate. And so in your dissertation work, what do you find in terms of policy preferences and economic literacy? So again, in two of my papers, I investigate the preferences for economic openness. And initially, I, I assume that financially literate losers and winners from globalization should have different policy preferences, right? I make the assumption that the losers from globalizations, globalization, if they are financially literate, they should be more likely to oppose globalization. Mm -hmm. And what I find both in the Italian and the British context is very interesting because I actually find that financially literate losers from globalization are more likely to um, support globalization than the, their illiterate counterparts. And this was one of the most puzzling findings I had in my research. And it made me think a lot about why this would be. And so mm -hmm. I speculated initially a lot and I thought, okay, well, maybe this could be due to the fact that they think their job is not at risk because of trade, but because of automation, or maybe they value their gains as consumers more than their losses as workers, which I doubt a little bit, or maybe they're more sociotropic, so they care more about the well-being of their country rather than their own well-being. Or maybe, and this is the, the hypothesis I then investigated, maybe they have lower discount rates. Maybe they have longer time horizons. So maybe becoming financially and economically literate and learning concepts like the time value of money makes you 
get like a longer time horizon decreases your your discount rate so what i did in in the italian once i started to think about this what i did in the italian survey since i did my own survey is i added a question to measure people's subjective discount rate and what i found was that indeed um financially and economically literate individuals had significantly lower discount rates so my my hypothesis was that, well, maybe these people think, put more weight on the long run instead of the losses in the short run. Maybe they think more about, well, their children are going to be better off. But again, none of this is causal. So to get a little bit, to get to the causality question, what I did was I designed a classroom experiment, which was interesting. I implemented it last year. So what I did was, okay, I wanted to see if indeed learning concepts like the time value of money actually decreased your, your discount rate. So what I did was I created four different groups. I went to the econ department and the policy department. And what I did was I first took two groups of freshmen, which is first year students, before they started any classes at the University of Washington. Mm-hmm. So in the fall of their freshman year. And I asked, and they were enrolled either in the uh, prerequisite for then any economics class, so intro to microeconomics, it's the prerequisite for any other economics class you're going to take. And then I went to an intro to um, political theory class and asked those students questions on which measure their discount rate. And I also asked them whether they took econ in high school in order to be able to control for that, because in that case, they could have been exposed to concepts like the time value of money in high school. And these were like my control groups. And then I went to a class that teaches, which is um, business finance here at UW, that teaches concepts like the time value of money. And I administered the survey at the end of the class. So after I was sure they had learned um, those concepts. And then I went to a political theory class at the end of the class and administered the same type of um, survey. And I was careful to ask in all of the non-econ classes whether they had ever taken or were taking econ classes, in which case they were excluded. So I wanted to make sure that they were not exposed to those concepts. And in the end, to make this shorter, what I find is that actually uh, learning these concepts like the time value of money, so becoming financially literate decreases your discount rate. But general education, so for instance, after taking other classes like political theory, it doesn't decrease your discount rate. And more importantly, there is a self-selection effect. So students that decide, freshmen that decide to take econ, do not have a substantially different discount rate from students that in their first year decide to take poli-sci. That's fascinating. And uh, can you explain again why the discount rate would matter for policy preferences? If you think about it, it matters a lot because if you have a very high discount rate, it's going to be hard to pass any policy that is going to bear benefits in the distant future, right? Right. So this could be a pension reform, but it could be climate change, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the most apparent evident example right now. Whereas if your discount rates are lower, you're actually considered more patient, right? So you're more likely to forgo some income now for more in the future. Gotcha. But if you are impatient, you want it all now. If your discount rate is very, very high, in order to give up like $100 now, 
you're gonna want like a hundred thousand dollars tomorrow right gotcha okay a cynic right would look at your experiment and say haha that's indoctrination at work right so what you're measuring here is not that people understand yeah the time value of money better or anything like that but rather these people are indoctrinated into uh yeah maybe like the neoliberal washington consensus type of economic thinking and therefore just parrot whatever it is that they're neoliberal economics professors or, or uh, business school or uh, finance professors are telling them. Um, how, do, how would you react to that? Well, what do we mean by indoctrination? Like, I still, no one here is denying that trade or immigration have costs and benefits, right? But we know from, like, I mean, we could cite all of the research that exists that finds how much the benefits exceed the costs, this doesn't mean that the losers shouldn't be compensated. I mean, I want this out and clear. But what I'm trying to say is that protectionism hasn't made any country richer mm -hmm. in the long run, at least. And we see the, actually, we see the results right now with, I mean, if we look very close to home, Trump's tariffs didn't really benefit anyone and the costs definitely outweighed the benefits, I mean, Brexit is proving to be a huge mess. And I don't think that they're ever going to be better off than they were when they were in the EU. So this isn't to deny, again, that there are costs and benefits and that there are distributional consequences to these policies. But these policies have made the world much better off. And again, we should compensate the losers and we should talk strategies in which to do that. But the solution is not thinking that there is any substantial benefit for large groups of people by restricting immigration or by putting up tariffs and by being protectionist. And what I do find, again, in, my, in, in all of my papers is that financially and economically literate people are more likely, regardless of their subjective or objective economic interests, so regardless of whether they're winners or losers from globalization, are more likely to favor economic openness. And financially and economically illiterate people are instead uh, more likely to favor protectionism and restrictions on immigration. Okay, so people seem to have different policy preferences, and those policy preferences are to some significant part determined by their level of economic literacy. But how much does this really matter for what kind of political decisions a person really makes? To what extent do policy preferences translate into actual vote choice? So I think this question is very relevant because it's connecting also what I think it's connecting politics to all of this and like what strategies could politicians follow once they are aware of this. One question that I also investigate and that I think is very related to this is the type of information that these two sets of people, the uh, financially and economically literate ones and the financially and economically Ill illiterate ones, resort to to update their views on, on certain policies. Mm -hmm. um, and so one experiment, and again, in a perfect world, what I would have done if I had had the resources would have been a randomized control trial in which I treat one group of people with financial and economic literacy and not the other, right? That's unfeasible for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. So what I've done instead is that if I, if my theory was correct, right? I I'm thinking my theory is, okay, so if you are financially and economically literate, 
then certain types of information, like peer-reviewed articles, expert information, should be cheaper to you, right? It should be easy for you to consult that type of information and, and update. But mm -hmm. if you're financially and economically illiterate, so if you don't think in terms of like economic cost and benefits, if you're not aware of like trade-offs, incentives, second and third order effects, and all of these things, it's unlikely that, I mean, that information is going to be very costly to you. So you're more likely to use cues from, from certain reference groups, like politicians, like business associations, labor unions, or, or anything else. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, how could I actually exploit this and, 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 and do an experiment on this? So I had this idea of starting from a policy that didn't really exist in the Italian political scenario, but that could be plausible. And it was a policy about price supports on olive oil. So mm -hmm. olive oil is actually very like salient in Italy. People are very, I would say nationalistic about it. And this, this specific policy didn't exist but there was something similar that was discussed about sheep milk in Sardinia, where um, actually from across the political spectrum, they wanted uh, price supports for the farmers. So it's not even like something that is partisan, like it was supported both from the left and the right. So I thought, OK, I could ask whether people would be in favor of this type of measure that is clearly welfare reducing because it helps a small group of producers at the cost of the rest of society. More specifically, the price support I described is one in which not only, so basically you introduce a price support. So let's say that the market price of olive oil would were four euros. And now the state says, well, it's gonna be six euros, okay? Mm -hmm. So there's gonna be a fall in demand at that price, right? And there's gonna be a, an extra surplus of quantity produced by the producers. So what's gonna happen is in this scenario, the government is going to buy that extra surplus. But when the government buys this, it's using your taxes. So this is actually an extra cost. What I did was I created three groups, a control group that was only asked, would you be in favor of this type of price control? Okay, so if you know, the government decides to in introduce this this minimum price for olive oil, do you favor it or do you not favor it? And you don't see anything else. And then there is a group that actually see a statement from a politician that says a biased statement that basically underlines the concentrated benefits. So says this is going to help enormously the producers because otherwise they cannot survive with foreign competition and everything. But it's going to conceal the you know, the more diffuse costs, right? So the fact that, you know, this is actually going to be a cost for consumers. So one group only sees this political statement, this political cue. And finally, a third group sees a short cost benefit exercise in which I list, I say basically how much after the introduction of the measure producers gain, consumers lose, and the government pays. And what they have to do is to add up those things in like which are costs and which are benefits, right? So that government expenditure, sh they should understand that's a cost because th that's taxpayers' money. Mm -hmm. So that society's wealth, well-being is actually, so society, society is, is, is worse off after the introduction of this measure. And so the reason why I, I wanted them to also answer this, whether they could do this, this calculation, is I want to see how many people actually got it correct 
and how many people got at least the direction correct so that at least they understood that it was a welfare loss and not a welfare gain. And the results were very fascinating because I find that the financially and economically literate people are about 25% more likely to solve the cost-benefit exercise co correctly mm -hmm. or at least identify the correct dimension and even more, um, the correct direction, sorry. And even more interesting, I find that while, so like, okay, the fascinating thing is that in the control group, there isn't a difference in preference between financially literate and illiterate. And there is overwhelming support for price controls, which really surprised me. So about 70% of people supported them in the control groups. But the fascinating thing is that what happens is that after the treatments, so for financially and economically literate people, they don't update their views after the political statements, but after the cost and benefit exercise, they're actually over 20% less likely to support price controls. So now you have about 48 people in those groups that support price control. So it's below 50%. Huh. So it's kind of a huge effect. And what happens for financially illiterate people is that they're not responsive to the cost benefit exercise, but they are responsive to the party queue. And they actually are like 5% more likely to then support price controls than those in the control group, which is exactly what I expected. So the point is that uh, people who are less economically literate are more susceptible or sort of more influenced by party queues. Exactly. And my concern is that, you know, party queues have been celebrated for years as a great effective way to make decisions when you don't have a lot of information. But the problem is that when, like in this case, those party queues are misleading and they are pushing a message against your own interest, you're actually going to do something that goes against your interest by acting on those. And conversely, what I show is that like policy information of this type can work, but only if the individual can understand and evaluate that type of information. And I think that this goes back to what a lot of my theory is about, which on why my concept of financial and economic literacy is different from just mere information. Because what I think is that financial and economic literacy is actually a framework that you use to make decisions. It's, it's about thinking in terms of cost and benefits, trade-offs, incentives. Again, not like this fixed static zero-sum world, but more of a dynamic world and like dynamic equilibrium and first and second and third order effects, right? Mm -hmm. What I think is that this type of thinking is not very common in Italy due to our type of culture, right? I actually, so I, I took the, the scientific track of high school and I never heard anything about economics until I decided to study it in college. I never knew anything about costs and benefits and about thinking in these types of terms. And my assumption is that most people don't. And most people think in terms, in different terms, like deciding in terms of fairness or, you know, like what's right or what's wrong. Mm -hmm. And this often make me, makes me think about when I had um, arguments with my dad about like the pension reform, right? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm serious. Like, and I tried to explain to him like how the system works and everything. And he's like, I'm 62. Like, it's just fair that I get to retire. And I'm like, what does it mean to be like, what if like, it's fair to you, but maybe it's not fair to me. Like, I will never see a pension and definitely not at 62. Like what this is about is whether you've paid enough contributions to retire. Right. 
but it's like just blows my mind that this type of thinking is is not in his mind and it's not in a lot of people of people's mind what i think is that just using information where where people are not actually updating using that type of framework they're not really processing that information in a wealth maximizing way or like economic well-being maximizing way however you want to call that it's actually not going to to move any anyone's opinion so it sounds like what you're ultimately now interested in is trying to figure out how people really evaluate different policies right like what kind of framework do they use what what informs their choices when it comes to uh different policies is that correct and and if so like where how are you going to approach these questions going forward even after 5 years working on this i'm still extremely fascinated by this and the more i go on the more again i'm trying to find ways and proxies in which i could measure what i just told you about right so like how do i know that pe- people are thinking in this type of framework right so again incentives costs and benefits trade offs and and recently i've been thinking a lot about how a lot of economic illiteracy seems to be related to zero sum thinking whereas economic literacy is more related to positive sum thinking and like gains mm-hmm. from trade and so which i think is like one dimension of economic literacy because we often think about how economic action is about eco- economizing right but we don't often talk about how economic interaction is actually about cooperating and how most of the economic interactions are about cooperation so to me it's like also it blows my mind that we often think of economics as like is it being about competitiveness but mm-hmm. i think it's it's more about cooperation so what i've been thinking about is that in my measures for instance i never really tap to zero sum thinking and i've been thinking of ways in which i could measure zero sum thinking versus positive sum thinking and one obvious solution to me seems something that is actually easy that can be easily implemented and it can be um some kind of survey experiment where you have a person repeatedly play a prisoner's dilemma right in which you tell them that their prize their cash prize is going to be proportionate to how much they win and their strategy has to be they have to maximize their gains given that they're playing against a computer that plays tit for tat which means that the mm-hmm. computer is going to defect when they defect and the computer is going to cooperate when they cooperate so if they understand if they played this let's say over 5 weeks repeatedly at some point they're going to understand that the strategy the maximizing strategy optimal strategy is going to be cooperate because the computer is always going to cooperate when they cooperate. And so I was thinking okay if we make a person do this and there are financial incentives attached because they're actually going to win money by doing mm-hmm. this and they understand that the more they cooperate the more they win what if then after that we treat them with an information treatment so now they have this new framework in their mind hopefully in which they understand that okay cooperation leads to more financial gains So now I treat them with an information in which I explain to them how similar trade works or how similar immigration works how it's not zero sums how they're not zero sum phenomena but they're actually positive sum phenomena 
And then, of course, I would have a group that only received the information and a group that doesn't do anything and a group that only plays the game. And I'm like fascinated to see whether this would have any effects on preferences for economic openness. It just amazes me how many people still think that free trade is about competition. It's about zero sum. It's about, you know, imports taking away jobs that could have been done here or right. immigrants taking jobs, taking our jobs. Yeah, that definitely. That would be uh, really exciting to see. What, what other new projects are you working on currently? Um, I'm working on projects that recently very interested in the gender dimension of populism. Mm -hmm. I think that's, I'm very interested in populism. And one question that I haven't seen answered enough is like, how is women's support for populism different? Are they driven to different type of, types of movements? Do they react to different types of, of shocks? So I'm kind of in the middle of starting to investigate this question. And I'm also looking forward to working more on the, I have this project in line on the effects of IMF conditionality on democratic on support for democracy across countries. Mm -hmm. I did this in part on what happened. I, I looked at what happened to EU countries, especially the peripheral ones after the Eurozone crisis and the um, Troika conditionality. And I find that there is a large drop in support for democracy and trust in institutions after the years of crisis. And that motivated me to actually extend this question to more countries, both in the uh, developing developed world about uh, what um, conditionality does to support for democracy. And, and finally, I've been working since April in a COVID-19 project here at the University of Washington, led by Professor Chris Adolph and John Wilkerson, where we actually investigate how different states um, passed social distancing measures at different points in time and why. And I think we're going to be talking about this soon on this podcast, right, Nicholas? That is correct, yes. Uh, we're going to have Professor Chris Adolph together with you, I believe. Uh, yes. We have scheduled in a couple of uh, weeks to talk about your COVID-19 project. Very excited about that. Well, thank you so much, Beatrice. We're going to speak next week and um, all the best. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by myself, Nicholas Wittstock, and Morgan Wack. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback, and if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.